0: What's important from my perspective is that getting experience working in and valuing interdisciplinary teams. And certainly a part of that is the kinds of things that happen at Santa Fe, where you just spend time immersed with a lot of diverse researchers and you understand more and more how to operate in that kind of context. But then I think also having the interest and humility to work and learn as a part of those groups is really important. So I actually really hope that we can kind of shift the messaging a bit to kind of talk about how important it is that we have these interdisciplinary collaborations, but that people come to the table uh, with an interest to help and learn and, and be productive, uh, as opposed to, you know, just try to make statements and take attention and resources and energy away from individuals who are working and have that, that expertise. Mm-hmm.
1: COVID-19 hasn't just disrupted the normal of everyone's social practices and what we take for granted as daily life. The pandemic has also more granularly changed the way scientists research and publish. It has changed the way science interfaces with institutions as varied as local governments and cell phone companies. It has changed the way we host and produce this podcast. This episode, for instance, with SFI external professor Sam Scarpino and resident professor Michael Lockman was recorded live over a year-end donor appreciation Zoom call for those who both contributed to SFI in 2020 and could handle yet one more group video chat. In it, we discuss their lessons from the front lines of network epidemiology this year. What has surprised them? What has stayed with them? and what they expect it all to mean in the years to come. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This will be our last episode of 2020, we'll see you again in the middle of January 2021. Tis the season. So if you value our research and communication efforts, please consider making a donation at santafe.edu/podcastgive and or rating and reviewing us at Apple Podcasts. Avid readers take note that the SFI Press's latest, Complexity Economics, is now available as a free ebook with donation at sfipress.org. You can find numerous other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu slash engage. And undergrads, you still have until January 11th to submit for our 2021 Undergraduate Complexity Research Program at santafe.edu slash UCR. Thanks for listening and happy holidays.
2: Hello to everyone. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Alana. I'm the one who's been sending you many emails and... We often, at the end of the year, have some sort of in-person winter tea to thank all of the people who support SFI and support this research. We cannot be in person this year, so much of what we do is now virtual. And I was really excited that Michael Garfield was willing to move the Complexity podcast and have it live and let all of us spectate and then participate. Yeah, I mean, this is a big thank you to all of you who allow us to do our jobs. And yeah, I hope you enjoy yourselves. This is recorded, so everyone's going to be muted for the duration. After the conversation, if you have a question, there will be a section for Q&A, and you can either raise your hand or put your question in the chat. If you do have a question... In the initial part, during the conversation piece, you're welcome to put that in the Zoom chat and Michael may see it and include it in the conversation. Otherwise you can wait for the latter portion. There's also closed captioning available at the bottom of your screen and you should just be able to toggle that on and off. So I'm gonna introduce the people who are spotlit right now. First off, we have Michael Lachman Michael Lachman is a theoretical biologist whose primary interests lie in understanding evolutionary processes and their origins. His work focuses on the interface between evolution and information. Lachman received his bachelor's of science at the Tel Aviv University, and then his PhD in biology at Stanford. Both of our guests today were actually postdocs at SFI, Then Lachman went on to work at the Max Planck Institute and is now a resident professor at SFI. Our second guest, Sam Scarpino is an assistant professor in network science at Northeastern University, as well as an external professor at SFI. Scarpino's research spans a broad range of topics in complex systems and network science, including forecasting and predictive modeling complex network analysis, epidemiology, genomics and transcriptomics, social networks and decision-making under uncertainty. Scarpino's research on COVID-19, Ebola, whooping cough and influenza has been covered by the New York Times, the Washington Post, NPR, Vice, Bloomberg, Stat News and many others. Scarpino earned a PhD in ecology, evolution and behavior from the University of Texas at Austin. And as I mentioned, was an Omidyar fellow, a postdoc at SFI. And lastly, we have Michael Garfield, the wonderful host of the Complexity podcast. Michael Garfield studied ecology and evolutionary biology as an undergrad at the University of Kansas and spent seven summers doing paleoecological fieldwork for the Wyoming Dinosaur (laughs) Society. And after 13 years as a scientific illustrator, and transmedia artist. He joined SFI in 2018 to translate complexity science for social media and host this very podcast. So I'm really thankful that you're all here and I can't wait to listen to you talk about what has been a a rather eventful year. Thank (laughs) you.
1: Yeah, so I think the right place to start with both of you gentlemen would be to just talk a little bit about, I mean, it's already the case that every researcher at SFI has very diverse interests and is their hands in a lot of different research questions, but it's nonetheless the case that For both of you, as well as for many others in this community, this year has precipitated a a rather significant pivot in your research activities and in your relationships to other scientists and to other institutions. And I know in your case in particular, Michael, you've kind of farmed yourself out to the University of Texas COVID Modeling Consortium this year with external professor Lauren Ansel Myers. I'd love to hear from you first, and then from Sam, how this pandemic has changed the way that you practice as a scientist and how it's, it's changed the kind of research collaborations and the kind of consulting work and advisory work that you've been involved in. That seems like a good place to start.
3: Yeah, my, I mean, my work since uh, end of March changed totally. So I, I offered myself to Lauren uh, to do anything she wants in her consortium. And since then, I've been there as a programmer, a modeler, and I do it all the time. So I totally dropped all my other projects and work on it something like 20, 20 hours a day. And slowly, I mean, uh, at the beginning... I have a, a mathematical background that covers model also modeling of epidemiology, but I've never done it. Slowly as I worked on it, I became more proficient and trusted myself to do more things. But yeah, the work now is very different from what I did any, at any time before.
0: How about you, Sam? I think from my perspective, it's been similar in some ways to past experiences with Ebola and, and with, with H1N1, although for a much longer period of time and a much more... Organizational way, especially in terms of how it's affected my life outside of practicing research. So I just finished teaching a 150-person intro stats course remotely, which is not something I necessarily expect that I'd ever be doing, at least at least synchronously. I think for me, the two biggest changes have been one, uh, how much I interface with journalists and in what capacity. So in the past, I've definitely talked with journalists regularly about my science and work that our group is doing, and. Since the pandemic started, that's happened a couple of times, but primarily it's talking with journalists who are just interested in understanding more about a particular aspect of COVID, not necessarily something that I'm directly working on. And so just the, the types of conversations and the, and the volume of, of conversations is completely different and something I've never experienced before. And similarly, I spent a great deal of time working with city governments, mayors, city councils their emergency response teams doing similar work, trying to help them understand as much as I do, or at least tell them the things that I don't understand about COVID-19. And then on the research side, and it's actually kind of interesting, I'd be curious to hear Michael's thoughts on this, is that most of my research group does not work on infectious diseases. uh, And they've all contributed to COVID in, in a variety of different ways, but I have been pushing them to turn back to their own research projects because they have dissertations to complete and and research projects that they're continuing to work on. So trying to strike that balance between their desire and interest to contribute, but also wanting to make sure that they finish on time and that that the research projects they're excited about and that they've poured their energy into like continue to progress. has been something I've been trying to balance as well
1: yes so listening to you speak about this stuff i am called back to david kinney's contribution to our transmission essay series back in what seems like the dawn age of march 2020 when he made a really interesting point in that piece about how scientists prefer to carefully disclaim their research findings to, to talk about uncertainty to talk about margin of error But when it comes to advisement on public policy, our political actors, our public leaders, heads of institutions want clear, actionable advice. And in our email lead up to this conversation, both of you addressed challenges in this particular case with different kinds of the poverty of data and radical uncertainty that we've been dealing with in this situation. So Sam, when we had you on the show back in episode 25, you spoke to some writing that you did on how this is linked specifically to economic inequality and the poverty of data coming from disenfranchised populations, how that affects the way that we respond to this. Michael, you've spoken about your interest in rapid testing, which is an area where we're called to take less accurate, less precise results. Michael Mina gave a great talk on this that's up on our YouTube channel about how sampling at a higher rate with fuzzier results can give us better information and and, uh, a better opportunity to respond. So I'm curious just where both of you are on this issue of uncertainty and actually how to turn into that particular problem and how to to possibly to use uncertainty in our favor in this situation or where, where it's still a crippling issue for response in this particular case, and in the address of other complex issues, predicaments.
3: Yeah. In our work, where we try to model Austin or Texas, there's big problems. So the problem here is that we don't really choose our data. We just get data. And very often, we can't control the quality of the data. So when we get data about uh, hospitals, it's hard for the hospitals to provide it. They need to enter all the patients every day exactly, and um, and then it can happen that, say, one hospital didn't do it one day. And if we, when we don't know about it, or even if we do know about it, it makes modeling much much harder. So the additional noise that that, that is in the data that we can't control because everything is crazy makes modeling and because of this also predictions much harder to do. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, on the data side, this is one of the things that we got involved in right away uh, back in January. Uh, it It's kind of become the standard operating procedure for infectious disease outbreaks that academics will start essentially hand coding data as it gets reported across myriad sources. So if you remember back to January, we were reading news reports about cases that were happening outside of China, cases in China, and that the most of the information around the pandemic was actually things that were reported via journalists because the regular reporting systems from the countries, the WHO, et cetera, hadn't been set up yet. So I was a part of this volunteer consortium, about 100 people from all over the world that were manually entering in data as it was reported in the newspapers. We entered tens of thousands of individual level anonymized COVID cases by hand moving into February. And then we spent the last six months working with a team of software engineers who we're on loan from Google to build a cloud data platform that automated the process of pulling in all of these disparate data sources, aligning them, cleaning them, ensuring that they're interoperable, going through a deduplication process. And so we've now got about 7 million individual level COVID cases from 160 countries. This is what the New York Times Magazine, Stephen Johnson covered when and he said that this is perhaps the most complete portrait of, of this pandemic you know, that's collected anywhere. And these data have been used to power... Uh, you know, all kinds of scientific studies all over the world. If you look at the RT.live that tracks the real-time effective reproductive number, they use the data that we captured from China on the delay distribution between symptom onset and PCR confirmation and how that shifts in time to calibrate their model estimates that everybody are looking at. So we kind of attacked the data problem from trying to go to the source and work on that. And now we've got We are actually very fortunate to receive funding support from a couple of large foundations hasn't been announced yet to continue this work going forward, both for COVID, but then also for future pandemics to ensure that we have the data systems in place that people like Michael and Lauren's team in Texas rely on for their predictive modeling.
1: So like a related question you brought up, you kind of alluded to a moment ago, and both of you addressed this in the lead up email thread, which is... The way that this situation and other crises create all hands on deck opportunities that tend to pull people into collaborations that would seem at least on the first pass outside of their area of expertise. I mean, this is perhaps just a a microcosm of the way that a rapidly changing world requires a rapid response and challenges are established metrics for expertise in the first place but it calls up all of this question about you know like Caroline Bucky talked about this when she was on the show about people that are <laughs> swerving out of their lane and offering advice on issues about which they know nothing and they're blocking the communications channels and increasing the noise in the discourse around this, making it hard for people who really ought to be given the microphone an opportunity to speak. This is an especially difficult problem for female scientists and scientists of color. It's aggravating existing uh, social inequities. But at the same time, it kind of speaks to this kind of broader issue with complex system science and interdisciplinary research in the first place. And I'd love to hear you talk to both the issue of, Sam, what you called epistemic trespass. I love that phrase. And where it is and is not an appropriate accusation of what's going on here and, and you know where it is that people without formal training in epidemiology or a related area really are needed in this, because I think the way that research collaborations are taking place now and the way that this has accelerated the sharing of unpeer-reviewed preprints and so on is a window into the way that science is going to be practiced more commonly in the years to come. And so these problems seem really worth attending to now. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, whoever cares to speak first.
0: Well, maybe I'll I'll be brief because I'm definitely curious to hear more about Michael's experience with Lauren and, and her team. But, you know, I am, I'm very torn about this because I think we've seen a lot of high profile examples of deeply unproductive statements coming from individuals that don't have the expertise and experience to be making them that are, you know, sucking up the communication channels and the attention, as you said, but I also don't have any formal training in epidemiology. And I think one of the interesting things that happened is that a colleague of mine, Professor Brandon Ogbunu, who's at Yale, wrote this article for Wired Magazine called COVID-19 Carpetbaggers and How to Identify Them. And he listed me as an epidemiologist. And then I tweeted and said that I'm not an epidemiologist. And then Twitter was arguing about whether or not I was an epidemiologist. Nobody could agree. Um, (laughs) And so I think one of the things that the real challenge is like on the call right now, the three of us should be talking about how spiral shape, mollusk shells evolve or something, right? Like not about COVID, like our background is in seemingly unrelated fields. Although, of course, as Michael mentioned, the math that, that describes how populations change can be applied to lots of different systems. And so I think what's important from my perspective is that getting experience working in and valuing interdisciplinary teams, and certainly a part of that is the kinds of things that happen at Santa Fe, where you just spend time immersed with a lot of diverse researchers and you understand more and more how to operate in that kind of context. But then I think also having the interest and humility to work and learn as a part of those groups is really important. So I actually really hope that we can kind of shift the messaging a bit to kind of talk about how important it is that we have these interdisciplinary collaborations, but that people come to the table uh, with an interest to help and learn and and be productive uh, as opposed to, you know, just try to make statements and take attention and and resources and energy away from individuals who are working and have that, that expertise.
1: It's a constant issue in our Facebook group reminding people to operate with negative capability and come in eager to learn. Yeah. Michael, what about you?
3: Yeah. I mean, the Lawrence group, so there's like the UT consortium. Uh, It is really amazing how many, how diverse the people who work there are and how many also people who uh, offer their, their uh, expertise. So there is like, a mathematician, physicists, engineers, all just want to help. Uh, the system means attack all the time, ask whatever, you know, like, is there any coding that, that they can help us with? So it, that group is really amazing and how diverse it is, people who just want to come and help. The same is actually also true for the rapid testing group, like rapidtest.org, where also there's people who just want to help, and they say, uh, you know, like some know video editing, uh, other you know how to talk to people, things like this. So I think that that is really amazing in this in this pandemic. In terms of expertise, it's a very complex issue because I think that everybody who works on COVID is way overworked. I mean, it is a, like I said, you work all the time, and any help would be good, especially. The COVID epidemic is, I think, very complex. And these days, it's not the virus anymore that we need to model. Actually, it has been from the beginning, but now even more. It's not the virus that we need to model. It's the people. It's hard to to understand what the people will be doing. And I don't think that we don't really necessarily have the right expertise to do it. So I think that any help should be accepted with open arms. But of course, on the other side, it's not easy to talk in a way that will help. It took me several months till I understood the language enough so that I could contribute. And I know friends of mine who uh, who wanted to help model, uh, wrote a very nice model. But the problem is it's really hard to get it into into the community. The community knows the language that they're talking in. And and the model that comes from some other field is not understandable. So I think it's a problem. Like on one hand, you really need a lot of help. But on the other hand, it's really hard to give you that help.
1: Uh So I'd like to peg from this into a question That ties into research that you've both done on human social relationships, because I think one of the things that we've continued to bang the the pan about at SFI, David Krakauer brought this up very early in our transmission series, was how this particular epidemic and epidemics in general, insofar as complexity researchers like to think in terms of flows of information, then the flow of the information contained in a viral genome is kind of fungible in some ways with other kinds of information that flow through human social networks and you know sam you you had a paper that you did with uh, laurent Hebert dufres and uh, jean gabriel young on macroscopic patterns of interacting contagions how they're indistinguishable from social reinforcement you know michael you've done work on costly signaling and the body's inhibition of cancer signals to try and cheat their way into more nutrition from the body so you know i think about all of this and how it's again it's related to how the lowered barrier to access in discourse through the erosion of legitimacy in traditional institutions and new sources has allowed more bad actors into the conversation has escalated informational warfare. The proliferation of QAnon this year seems to be piggybacking on, on the epidemic. And I'm just curious how you two feel that your research in this area does or does not illuminate this issue and you know what it might mean for how we think about systems of human communication in the future to not only inhibit the spread of future epidemics, but also future epidemics of socially deleterious human behavior and and human belief, <laughs> if we can go there.
0: You want to go first, Michael, or
3: <laughs> I can I can try. I mean, I think that there is a question: what is driving the what is driving uh, changes in the epidemic? So, for example, in the early modeling of in Austin, you can see right there was an uh, early ke- uh, time when the epidemic was really growing exponentially, and then it stopped. And it was around the time when a lot of mitigation strategies were, were enacted, like lockdown and schools closed and so on. But I think what we see in our data is that the numbers started to go down in Austin before lockdown. It started to go down when schools closed and colleges closed, even though today we think that directly schools don't really cause so much spread. But I think what happened was that the closing of schools was a signal to people that this is really serious. So they started to respond already. And we also see it later where the governor of Texas announced that people should wear masks. And I think that was, again, like a very strong signal in itself, even if people didn't start wearing masks immediately, but they treated the disease more carefully, more seriously. So I think that A lot of the measures aren't just measures in what they do. They're also a signal to people uh, what is happening with the disease.
0: Yeah, I think that it's a really interesting and challenging question from a whole bunch of different directions. So the paper that you mentioned, Michael, we were showing that a classic model that a lot of social scientists use to study information sharing on networks, this social reinforcement where it's kind of like a voter model for how information transmits. So you're going to continue to hold the belief you have unless both Michael and I are saying otherwise, and then you'll switch your belief as opposed to just getting infected from me only. So there's kind of this threshold. And what we show is that those are analytically equivalent to models that biologists use to study interacting pathogens moving through this the same population of hosts. And why am I telling this story? Well, I think the interesting part of this to me is that the co-authors of the paper and I actually disagree about what the most important take-home message is. So they think the most important take-home message is that we can take a single time series and use our social reinforcement model to ask whether there's any evidence for interacting pathogens or any other kind of weird non-linearity that's present when normally it would take at least two time series or, or more data to do that. And so they see this like silver lining. What I see is well, we actually don't have a way of, inferring the mechanism that's causing something to spread from the time series data alone, that you have to bring in external information and think about how you actually evaluate mechanism from a lot of different angles. And I both find that to be perhaps pessimistic, but also very exciting from a scientific perspective, that it means we have to bring to bear lots of different models and data and inference methods and and expertise to try to understand what's going on. And to Michael's point raises a really interesting question, Riley. We saw the same thing in Boston. It was one of the reasons why I and others were so critical of the IHME forecasting models is that they said, okay, if you have a shelter in place mandate, here's what happens to transmission. And that's not what happened. People locked themselves down weeks before any of that went into place because they were scared. And so the real thing that we have to understand is what is influencing people's behavior? How does that interact with their social networks and the pathogens to end up uh, affecting or not uh, disease transmission. And so even from the very, very earliest days of COVID, which should have been about as simple the a model as it's ever going to get, like a fully susceptible population, almost literally one person walks off of an airplane into the population, it immediately becomes vastly more complex as soon as people start to respond to that pathogen in terms of how they are going about their day-to-day lives. And I think that's that's all the more reason why we need the kinds of interdisciplinary collaborations that we started this conversation with.
1: So to that point, you know, looking at network structure, whether it's in collaboration networks or whether it's in the structure of our cities and how they're organized, I mean, it's clear that what counts as an effective intervention in one metro area doesn't seem to work across the board, that we have to think about this in terms of how different cities have have grown up over time. And I know, Sam, you just co-authored a paper in Nature about this, about the the metapopulation structure of our cities. I'd love to hear you give us a short exegesis of that work. And maybe if we have insights, the two of you can can draw from that into thinking about how, you know, just for example, like the, uh, I remember Richard Florida published a really interesting piece a couple months ago on his blog about how the structure of our cities has already reacted to previous epidemics that, you know, the porcelain bathroom wasn't a thing until you know we realized that germs were lingering in wooden toilets and that kind of thing. And so we've, the way that we have come up with the design of our urban spaces has changed a lot. And, you know, other than the apparent and horrifying emergent norm of, you know, constant face masks and the new radius of personal space that we might just be sort of left with after this. I'm curious about these insights and, and how you imagine they might change the way that we react to one another uh, going forward in the 21st century.
0: Yeah, well I'm really fascinated about that in general. I think one of the things that very few of us have appreciated is how much trauma we've gone through even if you haven't had covid or don't know anyone directly who's had it or 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 worse that it's affected our lives so dramatically that we're going to be processing this for the rest of our lives in in the same way that you know I remember my grandfather telling my dad before he left to go to college, how you could try to talk food out of a restaurant if you're hungry. And it's clearly you know his memory of growing up in the depression and going hungry and that this has this organizational effect on the rest of your life. And, and I think we're all going to be doing that in ways that we haven't really come to understand yet. And I suspect a lot of that will affect our cities and how they're organized. And so one of the things we tried to do in this paper is answer, or at least start to try and peel back some of what Michael was mentioning around why the, this epidemic persists in some places and seems to burn out quickly in other places. And it turns out that there's quite a bit of literature on this, both in the theoretical and empirical sides of, of epidemiology. So papers from uh, Duncan Watts and Peter Dodds looking at the effect of hierarchical community structure on an epidemic process. And so what you kind of imagine is you've got households that are in neighborhoods uh, that are in larger areas of cities and then cities are these kind of conglomerates of these of these neighborhoods and that depending on the biology of the pathogen you may have like these little mini outbreaks that are happening in households and then it takes a little bit longer to jump into another household in a different neighborhood and so if you actually had the really high resolution data, you'd see all these little waves that are kind of on top of each other. But because our data are noisy and the system itself is kind of noisy, it's this long kind of smear of cases that just drags on and on and on and on and on. And so we took data from China and Italy uh, that had already completed their first waves of the outbreak and showed that the width and height of the epidemic curves in hundreds and hundreds of cities across Italy and China is well-predicted based on a simple measure of population aggregation in space. And that this is something that's predicted from theoretical models and actually was shown in one of my favorite papers in epidemiology by Professor Lisa Statinspiel, an anthropological study of fur traders in Canada during the 1918 flu pandemic, where she actually showed that you get this kind of divide between tightly connected groups of fur traders and fur trading outposts versus more loosely connected and it drives these kind of multi-wave epidemics and she and her co-authors coupled those data like the logbook data from the fur traders with the 1918 flu cases with these agent-based studies so i think that these are the kinds of things that so many of us on the call understand how to work with and model and that's again partly why bringing this kind of interdisciplinary collaboration is so important because we do need to learn something about all the ways in which we understand how cities operate and they're organized and how that affects dynamical processes but then as we move forward and we have to think about what do cities 2.0 look like how do we best keep the things that we think are important about social networks and cities uh, and you know the kinds of work that's been done uh, you know pioneered at the santa fe institute while doing the best that we can to mitigate the future epidemic risk so i think it's going to be a really critical area of complex systems research and science for for years as a result of our realization about the fragility of so much of our organization especially in the United States and in Western Europe with respect to the effects of covid
1: Michael this seems related to a a topic you brought up ahead of this conversation about the strange behavior of the pandemic how it, the curve is staying flat much longer than the models would predict. I don't know if you want to link to that or if but that seems like an interesting association.
3: Yeah, I mean I think that at the middle stage of the the pandemic as as we saw it in Austin but I think in many many other places that the pandemic has had this long stasis where the cases stayed high but overall almost constant and I think in most models it is really hard to get something like this because most models you will either have, I mean, regular models will have exponential growth or exponential decline, but even if you modify the model to have a network structure, it's still hard to get stasis. You will either have maybe linear growth or growth like cubic growth or something like this. Like to get real stasis, I think, is very hard to get in a model. And um, so my interpretation was that it has, therefore, it has to be, it has to be some kind of feedback. So there has to be feedback that comes from the community where the community sees something about the epidemic and and then responds. It could even be something as simple as people moving out of New York uh, because they don't like it there anymore, that uh, it, things are so dangerous, or pe- people moving to, some, to, to Santa Fe because it looks so risk-free. But I think that Sam could talk about
1: this issue much better than me. Do you care, too, or or shall we launch I, into the Q&A? Well,
0: I'll just mention just very, very briefly that, and, and I actually think this is something that would be really interesting to work on, is we're tracking a lot of mobility data. And one of the things that was true back in the lockdowns in the spring is that every way we sliced and diced the mobility data, it was crashing. But now we see that it's coming back up differentially. So, for example, over Thanksgiving, we saw nationally that we had near pre-COVID levels of durations of social contacts outside of the household. However, we were still down 50% in terms of the number of unique social contacts. We've seen that mobility outside of the household for shopping has come back up to, you know, maybe 60-70% of normal, but commute flows are still way down but have been creeping up slowly 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 over the past few months. And in my head I can't get this image of the suburbs around Boston, that until the commute flow came back online, were previously basically isolated from each other. And then you have individuals going back to work in Boston, mixing and then going back out to the suburbs again. And so I think what we really are seeing is this like really rapid heterogeneity that has evolved in terms of our social contacts and our social networks. And it means that, you know, even trying to answer what seems like a fairly simple question from Michael about why is the epidemic curve so long becomes deeply, deeply complicated very quickly.
1: So to that question of heterogeneity, we have a a question from the audience, Kirsten Keynes, I believe. Kevin, if we can get you to unmute Kirsten so she can ask her question to our panelists here.
2: Hi, thanks for giving me the opportunity to ask a question and I appreciate the speakers. This was very informative. I'm interested in racial disproportionalities and in particular, the evidence that the disease burden is different for different racial groups, but so is the effect of remote learning and the potential risk to missed learning opportunities for people of color. And so I'm wondering how often policymakers and your scientific community ask you to think about those issues and also what you think are the most promising areas of research to help us make decisions to mitigate risks for people of color in the United States
3: thank you i can address it a bit so in our in our consortium it's it's a constant issue that we we work with all the time so our our modeling of austin for example is one big mishmash where all of austin other than age groups and risk groups is considered as one big pot but when we look at data we see that it is very much not like that and we have been since the beginning of the epidemic have been trying to Take that into account in everything we do. it is however not easy because anytime you try to make the model more more precise, it's easy to make the model more precise, but it's very hard to then fit the parameters so that you can use this so we need to have parameters like how much do people move from one area of the city to another or how much how many people work in various as essential workers and so on so it's easy to care, but it's hard to actually do something.
0: I think just very briefly, I mean, one of the things that we're going to have to figure out in this country going forward is how to prevent this from happening again if there's another pandemic, right? So one of the big challenges that local school boards, mayors, et cetera, were faced with is that they can't close the restaurants without a federal bailout. Even the states really can't do that. They don't have enough money to bail out the restaurants. They can close the schools. And that's doing something. And so I think we saw lots of cases across the U.S. where the schools were closed because that was the thing that they could do without the federal government support. Similarly, in terms of the CDC, until very recently, they've been providing almost no guidance whatsoever with respect to what people should be doing. And so you have mayors, city councils, school boards that are faced with this decision of trying to decide whether schools are safe or not. And they don't have the data, they don't have the guidance and they don't have the leadership that they need. And instead, then they, they fall back on influenza, where it is high risk for children, and schools are key drivers. And so they fall back on what they do know, and they close the schools. And we're only now very slowly starting to see that the CDC is providing the kinds of data that, as Michael mentioned, shows that that schools are, well not no risk, are low risk for transmission, and they can help with the reopening. And of course, as, as I'm sure you understand better than I do, and many people on the call do that. Schools provide a lot more than just what happens in the classroom with the teacher across the community. And so that when the schools are closed, there's a huge cost that the children pay in terms of their development, the behavior, but also uh, in terms of the community and, and the support that they have. With respect to communities of color, I mean, one of the key issues is that quite often the same kinds of effects of racism and xenophobia that cause these higher health burdens also result in a lack of information that's available to public health agencies, to Michael Lockman and, and Lauren Anselmeyers to actually model what's going on and what the needs are, right? It's so like one of the ways that governments disempower individuals is by not collecting data on them. It's why we're fighting over the census so often. I, we actually published a paper about this over the summer showing that Individuals who are in the highest risk groups for influenza by socioeconomic status are less likely to be in the surveillance data sets, which means we have more bias in our forecasts, less understanding of the, of the demand. And then, of course, when we move into the into the vaccine era. You know, we're seeing in Massachusetts that individuals who are non-healthcare essential workers aren't being prioritized for the vaccine. So the same kinds of lack of equity. Uh, we also aren't engaging with the fact that many of these communities have earned a deep distrust of the government. Uh, especially as it pertains to vaccines and medical care. And we're not really addressing that from a communications perspective, trying to build back that trust. And so I think it's it's a very complicated uh, issue that is going to require a lot of attention to work if we want to be able to to move forward at all from where we are right now.
1: Thanks. So I'd like to open this up, Kevin, if you can unmute Alan Kovich. I hope I'm saying that right. Alan had a question.
4: Uh, i was just curious about individual-based modeling. It seems like that's a pretty widely used kind of thing in, in areas of uh, movement ecology. And it seems like it'd be really helpful to sort out uh, different risk in terms of how people interact when they're out doing various kinds of things from either hiking, bicycling, shopping, whatever. But there may not be enough data to really make that helpful. And it seems as though um, it would be a tool that everybody has, has been using for lots of different kinds of reasons. And that might generate the interdisciplinary curiosity that could also develop some new
0: ideas. I can respond very, very briefly, and Michael has a lot more experience given the kinds of modeling they're doing in Lawrence group, although I think most of it's not agent-based modeling. But you know, one of the things that's different about COVID uh, is that the technology companies have opened up their data to researchers and public health in a way that they have never before. So we have this incredible lens into what individual people are doing as they go about their day-to-day lives. It's actually, I think, one of the big issues we're going to have to address as we go forward. So in South Korea, for example, they have this social contract between the citizens and the South Korean CDC as a result of SARS and MERS that says if these kinds of public health triggers happen, then the mobility data from the telecommunications companies gets handed over to the Korean CDC as a part of the response so that the public is actually benefiting from the invasion of privacy happening from the telecommunications companies. In the US, that's not the case, right? Like, so we have our privacy massively invaded by the tech companies, but then we don't get the data to benefit from it. And this is one of the first times when We have actually gotten access to these kinds of data and literally can look and see how people's movements are changing on a zip code by zip code level day by day by day as they respond to different orders and fear and and all of the other things that we've seen. So this is really the first time we've had the data to be able to approach at least the detailed level forecasts uh, with those kinds of models.
4: There was some discussion about having cell phones being able to interact and actually be able to map locations of individuals. That would certainly be some rich data for individual-based
0: modeling. Yeah, That'll be great for (laughs) pre-crime. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, I mean, the thing is, you know, we were supposed to have all these contact tracing exposure alerts with the Apple-Google collaboration and the Bluetooth and everything else. And somebody asked me the other day what I thought about the ethics of that. And I said, I wish we were talking about the ethics of that because somebody had actually done it. Instead, we don't have the damn thing especially in the US, it's just been inaction after inaction after inaction. And and so I think we should have had a conversation about whether we would have benefited from that as a society. And if we came down on the side of yes, we should have done it. But Michael, I don't know what your thoughts are on agent-based modeling. I know that that's a yeah. big issue at Lauren's lab.
3: I mean, in in our group, we do uh, every type of modeling. So the main model we use is like, is, like I said, compartmental. So everybody is just in a group, encountered as a group. But for example, when we model schools, we have individual-based models at the various levels. You know, like we have models that look at the the students when they are in the school bus and in the class and walking around, or we have models that just are still individual-based but in in large batches. And like I said, uh, the group also collaborates with many outside groups. So we have uh, groups of engineers that did really elaborate individual-based models where they actually do look at uh, individuals on their way to the grocery store and back and whether they're in a car or or a bicycle. But like you said, the problem really is, I mean, there's actually two problems. One is in order for that to really help you, you really need to have a well-calibrated model. If the model doesn't have the right parameters, it won't give you the right answers. And the other is how fast can it run? So when we do the Texas modeling or the Austin modeling, we need to run the model thousands of times to be able to say which of the models fits the cur- what we currently observe best. And with detailed individual-based model, it's not possible, or at least in the limited time that we had to write these, we can't make it fast enough. So that is, for us, that's the main reason we don't use more elaborate network models or, and individual-based models. So I'd
4: like to open this up. It seems oh, I'm wondering if somebody's making a list of things to do to get ready for the next pandemic. <laughs> it seems as though, you know, we were clearly behind, uh, even though people like Bill Gates and others were making these predictions. Uh, and I think now everybody's very sensitive to the fact that this won't be the last one. And the, the question then is, what will, when will be the next one and how much will we learn? So is there is there a central place for trying to come up with a good list of what we need to be doing more comprehensively, or is it still kind of
0: scattered? Uh, I I can be very brief or or try to. I mean, it's it's a great question, and and we could have uh, a whole – well, we did have some actual SFI meetings on on this uh, a while ago. I think it would be interesting to have one again. I think, actually, for me, the thing that I'm more worried about is the next 12 months, and many of the things we're going to need to do over the next 12 months are the kinds of things that we're going to want in place for the next pandemic. So, for example, we don't know whether the vaccines that are coming – block transmission. We don't necessarily have any reason to think that they don't, but that's not how the trials were designed. One of the projects that I started as a postdoc at SFI was to try to answer this question about whether the currently used pertussis vaccines block transmission. We are still working on that question and we are still arguing in different academic camps about what the answer is to that. It's a very hard question to answer and we are not designing the right kinds of data collection systems to be able to address that as the vaccines start to roll out. As COVID becomes increasingly rare, all of these things that we're talking about are going to get harder and harder and harder and harder. So one of the issues right now in Boston is that they have to triage out people with respiratory illness that is not COVID. And as COVID becomes less common, the proportion of individuals that show up in the ER in respiratory distress due to something else is going to go up. And so unless we have high resolution surveillance systems, unless we have data sharing, unless we have a plan for how we're going to respond quickly to flare ups, what kind of measures we're going to put in place, it's going to be a mess over the next 12 months. Even if the vaccine blocks transmission at 95%, we still have to vaccinate 60 or 70% of the population in order to get to herd immunity. That's about the percent of the population right now that says they'll get the vaccine. And so that's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take at least 12 months to do it. However, we can be back to a new normal in May if we layer in non-pharmaceutical interventions, mask wearing, physical distancing with the vaccines as they come online in a smart way. But we're not planning for that right now. And so instead, we seem to be having this idea of, of some kind of vaccination scrum without knowing whether the transmission is going to be blocked. Uh, and even if it was, it's going to take 12 months to get back to a new normal. And we're continuing not to engage in that social contract with the public where we explain to them, here's what we're doing, here's when it's going to end, here's why it's going to work, and here's why we're asking you to make these sacrifices. So hopefully with the administration change, that happens, but uh, that we're still going to be months behind by the time that occurs.
3: Yeah. Hi. I'm worrying about the next two months. <laughs> I mean, the, the growth that we see now is just incredible. And the virus will not stop itself. It, I mean, we need to, do, to stop it. So it, it might, if we don't stop it, then the vaccine might become irrelevant. We have to think about it like this. But I think that at all levels, we need to learn about how this pandemic progressed. And I think, I mean, this is out of my pay grade, out of my area. But I think what is, to me, totally obvious is that everything we deal with now in the next pandemic, we should never have these problems. So we should never, we should never get to this stage. The pandemic, every pandemic should be stopped right at the beginning, before it even starts. We should, we, would, we should never hear about them. I think there might have been 20 other pandemics that we never heard about because they were stopped at the right, at the right time. This, for me, would be the main thing. We should have stopped it in March or in January. But in terms of understanding what we did wrong, I think we will, I hope, we'll have enough time between this pandemic and the next to uh, evaluate that.
1: Excellent. So I'd like to open the floor to Christian Lemp, if we can ask him to unmute and, and drop his question in here.
0: Hey, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yeah. One thing I was curious about is in this COVID pandemic, one massively different dynamic is that we're all connected in a virtual way, much as we are now. And I'm wondering if you know anything about the behaviors that were adopted in previous pandemics, probably at the local community level. And is there anything different now that we're so super connected and we have all these new technologies? Are there any sort of negative outcomes as a result of that? Well, I think it's super interesting. if For no other reason than I've watched friends of mine become literally celebrities on the internet as a result of you know their work for, for COVID-19. It's been pretty amazing to see that happen, especially on the science side of things and how much effort has gone into trying to combat fake news and fake information by so many scientists that are dedicating a huge amount of time to that on social media and, and in the news. I'll answer this with To me, what I think is one of the more interesting things I've learned about pandemics from COVID, and you guys, I guess you'd think I'd already know this, but so it turns out that we don't know as much as we maybe should about what happened in 1918 and how societies changed. I think it's a really interesting question about what happened, why whatever happened didn't seem to last. And actually, one of the things I was reviewing Nicholas Christakis' book on COVID he has a sentence that says that pandemics are underappreciated in modern literature, that there's not very many pieces of modern literature that cover pandemics. And I thought that there's no way that that's true. That can't be true. And he said it in such a way that it was kind of a statement that you'd, you know, it was unfalsifiable anyways, but I said, no, I can't be true. So I started doing some research and it turns out that at least one prominent modern kind of Western canon author agrees. And that's Virginia Woolf who wrote an essay about having the 1918 flu. And in that essay, she talks about how literature does not cover uh, infectious diseases the way or, or or pandemics or anything the way that you would have thought they were. And she provides some explanation for why she thinks that is. But I think it's a really interesting question for whether that's the case and why. And actually turns out this would be the last kind of sidebar here is that There are apparently a minority of Wolf scholars that think that the start of Mrs. Dalloway is actually about the end of the 1918 flu pandemic instead of exiting from the war. So like reveling in the mundane and and shopping and those sorts of things. And so I think there is probably a lot we can learn. Uh, I think there's probably a lot that we've recapitulated that has happened before and has been undone. But I actually think that's a really important question that probably a lot of people on this call would be able to contribute to.
1: Michael, do you have thoughts
3: on that? Not as deep. What I see is mainly from the uh, from the scientific side because that is the main thing that I'm exposed to. You know, I'm working in Austin, and the same group. There's people who work from LA, from I, uh, from Iowa, and all this wouldn't have been possible. So the collaborations that are possible wouldn't have been possible. On the other hand, maybe if I wasn't working on this, I would work on the origin of life. So I definitely lost that. I think. So I think that the fact that we can in this time interact with our family even while they are uh, locked under lockdown is a, an amazing contribution of of the technology to what we are able to do today but i, I can't
1: really talk about how much we lost mm. so gentlemen do we have time for one more question here because as the sort of Will Wheaton-Wesley Crusher of SFI, there's one I've prepared specifically for this call that if, if we have time for, I'd like to get to, which is, and we've touched on this already in the call. Earlier this week in the SFI Musicology Working Group, I saw SFI fellow Tyler Margitis speak on his research into creative breakthroughs, you know, findings that right before a phase transition, like the eureka moment of an individual scientist or the sudden coordinated changes that happen in a jazz ensemble, that the networks, whether an individual or collective, show a spike in autocorrelation. I guess kind of like the hexagonal cells that form at the bottom of a pot of boiling water. Suddenly a new structure emerges. And other SFI scholars like Miguel Fuentes Rosa D'Souza, Martin Sheffer, have all discussed about how changes in network structure precede or possibly even help predict. Things like the frailty of aging brains, the imminent collapse of civilizations. We talked about this with Jeff West on the show, in spite of social distancing, and as you've discussed on this call, in many ways we are more connected to one another than we ever have been before. And this you know, is related to the strains, you know, talking about everyone being overworked, strains on our, our attention and our time, our emotional energy. And nowadays every, every breaking news item seems related to everything else. So in a way it looks like the onset of schizophrenia You know, like even if folks in the complex systems community are quick to celebrate it as an opportunity for it to be a common understanding in the public imagination of the interconnectedness of our world. uh, It seems like we're, we're sort of dipping our toe over the line here as a as a species between genius and madness. And so how much is too much, you know, in what ways is more connectivity helpful? And in in what ways, other than the obvious ill advised swapping of bodily fluids, would it be useful to try and preserve weaker coupling in our systems?
0: I mean, we could have a whole podcast probably about that. I, (laughs) you know, it's something I've been interested in for a long time. So that we had a a workshop, well, five of us who spent the summer in Marseille. And really, I mean, really, we were just trying to figure out how to spend the summer in Marseille. But the question was like, what signal would we see in human social networks of that process happening, right? Of this kind of trade-off between the benefits of of social connections and the cost of social connections. And especially if we thought it was kind of an out-of-equilibrium system. And so I I think it's a really interesting and important area of research that I know many people on this call are working on. And and so I think those are the kinds of questions that we should be wrestling with as a complex systems community anyways, but certainly because of COVID, because there's gonna be increased relevance for what, if anything, we can do to try and preserve the things that we think are good about social networks while mitigating costs.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that from what I saw, I'm now all the time just working on COVID, but kind of the, what I see from there, right, the, the amazing speed of science as it occurred in, in the COVID research. I mean, this is an amazing breakthrough on one hand, but on the other hand, right, no one has time to work on any question deeply. From what I saw in other fields kind of on the side, I think that other fields, for example, the field of the origin of life also started to do like accelerated interaction, ac- accelerated research over this time. And again, we have, I think, after we're done with COVID and we're after we're done writing up all the mistakes we made and all the things we need to learn from this, I think going over the different scientific fields and understanding how much of an acceleration have we observed? How much of a slowdown? How has it changed the process of reviewing
0: and looking at papers?
3: Is, I think, a big a big thing that we'll have to learn from this way of doing science.
0: There's something like well over 200,000 papers with COVID in the title since January. And it's interesting because COVID is not a word that we used before January. So you can be pretty sure that those were all in the last eight to 10 months. And so... It's, it's, it's kind of unimaginable how much information has been generated and put out there by the scientific community.
1: Well, that's just wonderful. I really want to thank you both for uh, donating your time to this, to everyone who showed up for their donations in financial contribution or in sweat equity to SFI and everything that goes on here. This episode will go out on our regular feed in a couple of weeks. This week, we're about to publish our conversation with uh, Artemy Kolczynski, which is really bizarre and wonderful. So uh, I hope that if you're not already subscribed to the show, that you do so wherever you go for podcasts. And, and thanks again, everyone, so much for facilitating and attending this discussion. This was immensely fun for me, and I hope for you too as well.
2: Yeah. Thank you all. And to reiterate what Michael Garfield put in the chat, follow-up questions can all, if you're on Twitter, you can tweet about it. You could email me and I can send them on. And thank you for being part of this conversation. Thank you for being part of the SFI community. And I wish you a safe and distanced end of the year. Distanced physically, but not emotionally or intellectually. (laughs) Bye.
1: Bye. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex systems science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu/podcast.